Chapter 9, Part 1 of Principles of Geology. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Principles of Geology by Charles Lyell. Chapter 9, Part 1. Theory of the progressive development of organic life at successive geological periods. Theory of the progressive development of organic life. Evidence in its support inconclusive. Vertebrated animals and plants of the most perfect organization in strata of very high antiquity. Differences between the organic remains of successive formations. Comparative modern origin of the human race. The popular doctrine of successive development not established by the admission that man is of modern origin. Introduction of man, to what extent a change in the system. Progressive development of organic life. In the preceding chapters, I have considered whether revolutions in the general climate of the globe afford any just ground of opposition to the doctrine that the former changes of the earth, which are treated of in geology, belong to one uninterrupted series of physical events governed by ordinary causes. Against this doctrine, some popular arguments have been derived from the great vicissitudes of the organic creation in times past. I shall therefore proceed to the discussion of such objections, which have been thus formally advanced by the late Sir Humphrey David. It is impossible, he affirms, to defend the position that the present order of things is the ancient and constant order of nature, only modified by existing laws. In those strata which are deepest and which must consequently be supposed to be the earliest deposited, forms even of vegetable life are rare. Shells and vegetable remains are found in the next order. The bones of fishes and oviparous reptiles exist in the following class. The remains of birds with those of the same genera mentioned before in the next order. Those of quadrupeds of extinct species in a still more recent class. And it is only in the loose and slightly consolidated strata of gravel and sand and which are usually called diluvian formations, that the remains of animals such as now people the globe are found with others belonging to extinct species. But in none of those formations, whether called secondary, tertiary or diluvian, have the remains of man or any of his works been discovered. And whoever dwells upon this subject must be convinced that the present order of things and the comparatively recent existence of man as the master of the globe is as certain as the destruction of a former and a different order, and the extinction of a number of living forms which have no types in being. In the oldest secondary strata there are no remains of such animals as now belong to the surface, and in the rocks which may be regarded as more recently deposited, those remains occur but rarely and with abundance of extinct species. There seems as it were a gradual approach to the present system of things 
and the succession of destructions and creations preparatory to the existence of man. In the above passage, the author deduces two important conclusions from geological data. First, that in the successive groups of strata, from the oldest to the most recent, there is a progressive development of organic life from the simplest to the most complicated forms. Secondly, that man is of comparatively recent origin and those conclusions he regards as inconsistent with the doctrine that the present order of things is the ancient and constant order of nature only modified by existent laws. With respect then to the first of those propositions, we may ask whether the theory of the progressive development of animal and vegetable life and their successive advancement from a simple to a more perfect state has any secure foundation in fact. No geologists who are in possession of all the data now established respecting fossil remains will for a moment contend for the doctrine in all its detail as laid down by the distinguished philosopher to whose opinions we have referred. But naturalists who are not unacquainted with recent discoveries continue to defend it in a modified form. They say that in the first period of the world, by which they mean the earliest of which we have yet brought to light any memorials, the vegetation was characterized by a predominance of cryptogamic plants, while the animals which coexisted were almost entirely confined to zoophytes, testacea and a few fish. Plants of a less simple structure, conifery and cycadi, flourished largely in the next epoch, when oviparous reptiles began also to abound. Lastly, the terrestrial flora became most diversified and most perfect when the highest orders of animals, the mammalia and birds, were called into existence. Now, in the first place, it may be observed that many naturalists are guilty of no small inconsistency in endeavoring to connect the phenomena of the earliest vegetation with the nascent condition of organic life and at the same time to deduce from the numerical predominance of certain forms the greater heat of uniformity of the ancient climate. The arguments in favor of the later conclusions are without any force unless we can assume that the rules followed by author of nature in the creation and distribution of organic beings were the same formally as now and that as certain families of animals and plants are now most abundant in or exclusively confined to regions where there is a certain temperature, a certain degree of humidity, a certain intensity of life and other conditions. So also analogous phenomena were exhibited at every former era. If the postulate be denied and the prevalence of particular families be declared to depend on a certain order of precedence in the introduction of different classes into the earth and if it be maintained that the standard of organization was raised successively, 
we must then ascribe the numerical preponderance in the earlier ages of plants or simpler structure not to the heat or other climatal conditions, but to those different laws which regulate organic life in newly created worlds. Before we can infer a warm and uniform temperature in high latitudes from the presence of 250 species of ferns, some of them arborescent accompanied by Lycopodiaceae of large size and Arachuri, we must be permitted to assume that at all times, past, present and future, a heated and moist atmosphere pervading the northern hemisphere has a tendency to produce in the vegetation a predominance of analogous forms. It should moreover be borne in mind, when we are considering the question of development from a botanical point of view, the naturalists are by no means agreed as to the existence of ascending scale of organization in the vegetable world corresponding to that which is very generally recognized in animals. From the sponge to man, in the language of Dublaville, there may be a progressive chain of being although often broken and imperfect. But if we seek to classify plants according to a linear arrangement, ascending gradually from the lichen to the lily or the rose, we encounter incomparably greater difficulties. Yet the doctrine of a more highly developed organization in the plants created at successive periods presupposes the admission of such a graduated scale. We have as yet obtained but scanty information respecting the state of terrestrial flora at periods antecedent to the coal. In the Carboniferous epoch, about 500 species of fossil plants are enumerated by Adolf Brongniart, which we may safely regard as mere fragment of an ancient flora. Since in Europe alone there are now no less than 11,000 living species. I have already hinted that the plants which produced coal were not drifted from a distance, but that nearly all of them grew on the spots where they became fossil. They appear to have belonged, as before explained, page 150, to a peculiar class of stations, to low-level and swampy regions in the deltas of large rivers, slightly elevated above the level of the sea. From the study, therefore, of such vegetation we can derive but little insight into the nature of the contemporaneous upland flora, still less of the plants of the mountainous or alpine country. And if so, we are unable to account for the apparent monotony of the vegetation, although its uniform character was doubtless in part owing to a greater uniformity of climate than prevailing throughout the globe. Some of the commonest trees of this period, such as the sigillaria, which united the structure of ferns and of cycadi, departed very widely from all known living types. The coniferae and ferns, on the contrary, were very closely allied to living genera. It is remarkable that none of the exogens of Lindley, Dicotyledons angiosperms of Brongniart, which comprise the four-fifths of the living flora of the globe and include all the forest trees of Europe except the fir tribe, have yet been discovered in the coal measures, and a very small number, 15 species only, of monocotyledons. If several of the 
those last are true plants, an opinion to which Messrs Lindley, Anger, Corda and other botanists of not incline, the question whether any of the most highly organized plants are to be met with an ancient strata is at once answered in an affirmative. But the determination of those palms being doubtful, we have as yet in the call no positive proofs either of the existence of the most perfect or of the most simple forms of flowering or flowerless vegetation. We have no fungi, lichens, hepatici or mosses, yet this later class may have been as fully represented then as now. In the flora of the secondary eras all botanists agree that palms existed, although in Europe plants of the family of Zemia and Cycas together with conifery predominated, and must have given a peculiar aspect to the flora. As only 200 or 300 species of plants are known in all the rocks ranging from the Trias to the Oolite inclusive, our data are too scanty as yet to affirm whether the vegetation of this second epoch was or was not on the whole of a simpler organization than that of our own times. In the lower Cretaceous formation near Aix-la-Chapelle, the leaves of a great many dicotyledonous trees have lately been discovered by Dr. Dubuet, establishing the important fact of coexistence of a large number of angiosperms with cycadae, and with that rich reptilian fauna comprising the ichthyosaur, lysiosaur, and pterodactyl which some had supposed to indicate a state of atmosphere unfavorable to dicotyledonous vegetation. The number of plants hitherto obtained from tertiary strata of different ages is very limited, but is rapidly increasing. They are referable to a much greater variety of families and classes than an equal number of fossil species taken from secondary or primary rocks, the angiosperms bearing the same proportion to the gymnosperms and acrogens as in the present flora of the globe. This greater variety may doubt be partly ascribed to the greater diversity of stations in which the plants grew, as we have in this case an opportunity rarely enjoyed in studying the secondary fossils of investigating inland or lacustrine deposits accumulated at different heights above the sea, and containing the memorials of plants washed down from adjoining mountains. In regard then to the strata from Cretaceous to the uppermost tertiary inclusive, we may affirm that we find in them all the principal classes of living plants, and during this vast lapse of time four or five complete changes in the vegetation occurred, yet no step whatever was made in advance to any of those periods by the addition of more highly organized species. If we next turn to the fossils of the animal kingdom, we may inquire whether when they are arranged by the geologists in a chronological series, they imply that beings of more highly developed structure and greater intelligence enter upon the earth at successive epochs, those of the simplest organization being the first created and those more highly organized being the last.
Our knowledge of the Silurian fauna is at present derived entirely from rocks of marine origin. No freshwater strata of such high antiquity having yet been met with. The fossils, however, of those ancient rocks at once reduce the theory of progressive development to within very narrow limits, for already they comprise a very full representation of the radiata, melasca and articulata proper to the sea. Thus, in the great division of radiata, we find asteroid and helianzoid zoophytes besides crinoid and cystidian echinoderms. In the melasca, between 200 and 300 species of cephalopoda are enumerated. In the articulata, we have the crustaceans represented by more than 200 species of trilobites besides other genera of the same class. The remains of fish are as yet confined to the upper part of the Silurian series, but some of those belong to placoid fish, which occupy a high grade in the scale of organization. Some naturalists have assumed that the earliest fauna was exclusively marine, because we have not yet found a single Silurian helix insect, bird, terrestrial, reptile or mummifier. But when we carry back our investigation to a period so remote from the present, we ought not to be surprised if the only accessible strata should be limited to deposits formed far from land, because the ocean probably occupied then, as now, the greater part of of the Earth's surface. After so many entire geographical revolutions, the chances are nearly 3 to 1 in favor of our finding that such small portions of the existing continents and islands as exposed Silurian strata to view should coincide in position with the ancient ocean rather than the land. We must not therefore too hastily infer from the absence of fossil bones of mammalia in the older rocks that the highest class of vertebrated animals did not exist in remoter ages. There are regions at present in the Indian and Pacific Oceans coextensive in area with the continents of Europe and North America, where we might dredge the bottom and draw up thousands of shells and corals without obtaining one bone of a land quadruped. Suppose our mariners were to report that on sounding in the Indian Ocean, near some coral reefs and at some distance from the land, they drew up on hooks attached to their line portions of leopard, elephant or taper, should we not be skeptical as to the accuracy of their statements? And if we had not doubt of their veracity, might we not suspect them to be unskillful naturalists? Or if the fact were unquestioned, should we not be disposed to believe that some vessel had been wrecked on the spot. The casualties must always be rare by which land quadrupeds are swept by rivers far out into the open sea, and still rarer the contingency of such a floating body not being devoured by sharks or other predaceous fish. 
such as were those of which we find the teeth preserved in some of the Carboniferous strata. But if the carcass should escape and should happen to sink where sediment was in the act of accumulating, and if the numerous causes of subsequent disintegration should not efface all the traces of the body, included for countless ages in solid rock, is it not contrary to all calculation of chances that we should not hit upon the exact spot, that mere point in the bed of an ancient ocean where the precious relic was entombed? Can we expect for a moment, when we have only succeeded amidst several thousand fragments of corals and shells, in finding a few bones of aquatic or amphibious animals, that we should meet with a single skeleton of an inhabitant of the land? Clarence, in his dream, saw in the slimy bottom of the deep a thousand fearful wrecks, a thousand men that fishes gnawed upon, wedges of gold, great anchors, heaps of pearl. Had he also beheld amid the dead bones that lay scattered by the carcasses of lions, deer and the other wild tenants of the forest and the plain, the fiction would have been deemed unworthy of the genius of Shakespeare. So daring disregard of probability and violation of analogy would have been condemned as unpardonable, even where the poet was painting those incongruous images which present themselves to a disturbed imagination during the visions of the night. Until lately it was supposed that the old red sandstone or Devonian rocks contained no vertebrate remains except those of fish, but in 1950 the footprints of a Chelonian and in 1951 the skeleton of reptile allied both to the Batrachians and lizards were found in the sandstone of that age near Elgin in Scotland. Up to the year 1844 it was laid down as a received dogma in many works of high authority in geology that reptiles were not created until after the close of the Carboniferous Epoch. In the course of the year, however, Hermann von Mayer announced the discovery in the coal measures of Rhenish Bavaria of a reptile called by him Apation related to the salamanders. And in the 1847 three species of Another genus called Archeosaurus by Goldfuss were obtained from the coal of Salzburg between Treves and Strasbourg. The footprints of a large quadruped, probably Batrachian, had also been observed by Dr. King in the Carboniferous rocks of Pennsylvania in 1844. The first example of the bones of a reptile in the coal of North America was detected so lately as September 1852 by Mr. G. W. Dawson and myself in Nova Scotia. Those remains referred by Messrs. Weyman and Owen to a perennibranchiate Batrachian were met with in the interior of an erect fossil tree, apparently a sagillaria. They seem clearly to have been introduced together with the sediment into the tree during its submergence and after it had decayed and was standing as a hollow cylinder of a bark, this bark being now converted into coal. When Agassiz in his great work on fossil fish described 152 species of ichthyolites from the coal, he found them to consist of 94 placoids belonging to the families of shark and ray and 58 ganoids. 
One family of the later he called suroid fish, including the Megalithus and Holopticus, often of great size and all predaceous. Although true fish and not intermediate between that class and reptiles, they seem to have been more highly organized than any living fish, reminding us of the skeletons of saurians by the close suture of their cranial bones, their large conical teeth striated longitudinally, and the articulation of the spinous processes with the vertebra. Among living species, they are most nearly allied to the lepidosteus or bony pike of the North American rivers. Before the recent progress of discovery above alluded to had shown the fallacy of such ideas, it was imagined by some geologists that this ichthyotic type was the more highly developed because it took the lead at the head of nature before the class of reptiles had been created. The confident assumption indulged in till the year 1844 that reptiles were first introduced into the earth in the Permian period shows the danger of taking for granted that the date of the creation of any family of animals or plants in past time coincides with the age of the oldest stratified rock in which the geologist has detected its remains. Nevertheless, after repeated disappointments, we find some naturalists as much disposed as ever to rely on such negative evidence, and to feel now as sure that reptiles were not introduced into the earth till after the Silurian epoch as they were in 1844, that they appeared for the first time at an era subsequent to the Carboniferous. Scanty as is the information hitherto obtained in regard to the articulator of the coal formation, we have at least ascertained that some insects winked their way through the ancient forests. In the ironstone of Colbrook Dale, two species of Coleoptera of the Linian genus Curculio have been met with, and a Neuropterous insect resembling a Corydalis together with another of the same order related to Pasmida. As an example of insectivorous arachnida, I may mention a scorpion of the Bohemian coal, figured by Count Sternberg, in which even the eyes, skin and minute hairs were preserved. We need not despair, therefore, of obtaining eventually fossil representatives of all the principal orders of hexapods and arachnida in Carboniferous strata. End of chapter 9, part 1